Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. in three acts about parts by Pamela Crow. Prologue. I wanted to tell you about my body and thought about all the ways this was possible. I thought if I could make you feel what I felt when moving, you'd stop and listen, be altered. And I thought too about having endless chance, all the cash you could have to make the story big, full colour, sound and crew. And I thought still, how can I tell you what I know, show you how I write inside, how I move? And I thought about characters, who I'd need to make and say it fully. I thought about dialogue and acting, and who I'd trust to voice it. I thought about my own voice, small and angry some days, others very clear. I thought about you and who you were, why you'd come here. And I decided, in the end, to just start writing and stop imagining some scene where I've achieved all this and you are altered, even if that means I've failed, used the wrong words, chose the ones that soothe me but repel you. I thought I should just start writing, so stay if you can, with esteem and fondness, and with love always, the triple fool. Act 1. Palpate a polyp. At the car hire on the boulevard de Rajerome, I'm turned on by the pavement heat and the VW polo keys the woman on the front desk has handed me. In Canada last summer, that Toyota SUV was pure joy. We drove through Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in automotive adulthood. It's my first time in a Giaccio, and I know nothing of the place, but that John likes it too. Go to the mountains, he says, and in time, we do. Colorectal Surgery Clinic letter, 24th of April, 2018. Dear Dr. Baker, thank you for referring Emma. She is a pleasant 43-year-old lady who works as an art teacher running workshops. She presents with a number of bowel symptoms and pelvic discomfort, most of which stems back a couple of years to the birth of her third child. Was it a particularly difficult delivery, but her pelvis has not quite felt normal since. She's been investigated by the urogynecologist and had periods of pelvic floor training, which hasn't made much difference. She gets discomfort around her coccyx and pelvis. She has been under quite a lot of stress in the last few months. 
She's otherwise in good health. She did have an episode of Guillain-Barre syndrome and the suspicion is that she may be menopausal. She lives with her three children. She drinks alcohol socially. Due to some relationship difficulties, she is not feeling as healthy as she did six or so months ago where she used to go to the gym frequently and very much look after herself. Examining her, she looks well. Her abdomen is soft and non-tender with no palpable masses. Perianal inspection was unremarkable and digital rectal examination was normal, but I was unable to palpate a polyp. She does clinically have a rectocele. I have arranged a colonoscopy to investigate the suspicion that she may have a rectal polyp. I've also arranged a defecating proctogram to see if she does have a rectocele. I will see her with the results. Mr. R.P. Elliott, colorectal surgeon. That's my letter, my prolapse. That was 2018, but we're going to go back further. I'm in the gym. It's 2009. I feel and look amazing. In my head. In fact, I'm pregnant and drowning in hormones which tell me great things about myself. This is different from my first pregnancy, where I gave birth to a dry child without eyebrows and spent months with red rashes up my arms and legs so that I lay awake with bags of peas on my limbs downstairs on the sofa through the night. That was 2006. And 2006 is a big year to have a baby because none of the schools will let your child in in 2010. They're full. Also, 2006 is hot. I spent the summer listening to friends of my mother and my mother tell me that it was almost as hot as the summer of 1976 when they, quote, carried Claire or Rachel. But this isn't 2006. It's February 2009 and my skin is glowing and I'm about to give birth to a heavily moisturised baby. When the baby arrives, I rapidly lose weight. I go to the gym a lot, sometimes twice a day if the morning session doesn't go that well. I love the gym. I love how it makes me feel. I love losing weight and I love being thin. I love being in control of my body. I love running. I'm 35 and at this point in my life I have more sexual confidence than I did at 18 or really at any point in between. Say for the summer I walk down the beachfront in 45 degree heat in a Giaccio in Corsica in a bikini I'd made from two bikini bottoms from Debenhams in Leeds. They'd sold out of the top bits. I was 29 at that point. I felt beautiful. That's one of the first times I can remember that feeling. Most of Europe was hiding indoors. I think people were dying from the heat, but I was having an emotional orgasm walking semi-naked with a can of Diet Coke down the beachfront in the capital of Corsica at 3pm. That's how much I liked my body that day. And heat. There are moments pre-Corsica, pre-Ajaccio, pre-that bikini, when I do see and love myself. They're not frequent, but they do exist. I remember them. At 19, when I cut off my hair. At 21, briefly. At 29. And sometimes, now. Some memories can't be written about. Some can. Would I take the hum out of this if I wrote it down, or ever spoke to you again? 
Instead, I picture the room where you stood, your form, the taps, and the magnificent lack of meaning. And the detail is me and what I wore, how it felt in those dull clothes I loved, transformed into stealth by their shape, how they sat, their colour, my height, the silent presence of you. My shoulders curve. How content I was, warm, at peace with the image reflected back, and the possibility, the sudden, amusing possibility, that you liked it too. It's important to know that I have a relationship to my body that requires some work. I have trouble with my face, a belief, or to me a reality, that while I must try and live with it, others shouldn't have to, or won't, or can't. That to be out in the world with this face is asking too much. It's an imposition. I persona this out daily, try to ignore it, but it takes very little to re-enter loathing on a scale I don't think I can convey. Personering it requires me deluding myself that my face doesn't matter, yet a photo or a comment can penetrate with near violence, make me want to hide forever. These things tell me that my face does matter, and it is wrong. I compensate, have always compensated, by thinking that neck down, if I work on it, I'm okay, that my body is okay. The face not, but it's what I have. I compensate by writing and by reading, and I compensate by laughing. From a young age, I tried to convince myself that my value would come from knowledge and learning and honesty and compassion, that these qualities would be valued. I hoped they would, being all I had. I suppose what I'm describing falls under body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, but this is a new term for me. I've rarely spoken about how I feel about my face because I'm so certain I'm right about it. I've never seen it as an issue that needs addressing. When you're so horrified and disappointed by something, the last thing you're going to do is draw attention to it. With photos, I have an odd thing, where six months or a year after I've completely recoiled at one, really had to recover from one, it appears fine, as if some spell has now landed. This tells me so much about the initial spell in my head, the one that disfigures what I first see. How can days and weeks alter an image? How does that work? But back to 35. I have the baby. I lose weight by going to the gym and running. I fancy a PT, a personal trainer at the gym, who is small and very aggressive. I enjoy liking him because I find it funny that he's not only not tall enough for me, but the funniest part is how bad I feel at being attracted to a rude man. It's got the Mr Darcy vibe and I find this hilarious. Nothing happens, of course. I'm married. It's okay to have an idea of someone occasionally and do nothing about it. It's okay to like the idea of someone. The idea of someone is the best part about a person. I love liking the idea of someone. It's lazy and uneventful. It's no effort. It often doesn't hurt, although sometimes it does. When you get over it, nothing has happened. Perfect. It's equally funny clocking when someone likes the idea of me, when clearly they really have no idea. All relationships are formed on the idea of someone. That's why divorce exists. Divorce is when the actual wins over the idea. It's very difficult to know what to do when the actual kicks in. It's very sad, of course, but I think it's okay, too. The idea is necessary so that anyone can get together. Also, it enables babies and mortgages and generally all the stuff that fills the middle years. Then when the idea has gone, you're a bit fucked. Obviously, many people adopt a new idea about a new person, and so it continues. After a few years of it, some of us think, hmm, there's the idea kicking in. And once you clock it, it's hard to get past noticing it. So this PT guy, I had an idea about. A lovely, pointless idea. 
But by the time my son, my lovely, moisturised son, is nine months old, my body is fucked. So fucked, I can't hold him. So fucked, I can't be his mum anymore. That's how fucked I am. This happens because I wake up one day and I can't really feel my skin or air or fabric or the shower. I can see the shower and I can feel something that looks like water falling, but it's telling me it's hot and cold at the same time and also it isn't touching me, even though it is. Two nights before this, I'm woken by the most horrific back pain, then fall back asleep, confused by the memory. The next night, my body wakes me to tell me my legs don't work and I check them and they don't, but I tell myself this can't be happening and I go back to sleep. When I go to LGI, Leeds General Infirmary, later that day, I can walk, but within five days, I won't walk anymore. By this point, I'm in a ward at LGI, and the weekend doctor has told me that I need to dramatically alter my expectation about the future. The conversation went something like this. You are going to be here a long time, he says. You are not going home this weekend, or in a few days, or a week, or the week after. You are going to be here a long time, you are going to get more ill. You need to make preparations about who will look after your children, about your work. You are going to need support. You cannot continue to breastfeed your baby. You cannot sustain your own life at the moment. It's not possible that you try and sustain another. This is horrific, and I am unable to process it. I have a baby girl, barely three, and a baby boy, nine months. It's not possible for me to adjust to a different future, one where they've been written out, where I'm written out. I descend into terror, silent, composed terror. The paralysis I experienced was due to Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is often shortened to GBS. They also say that GBS stands for getting better slowly. GBS is an autoimmune disorder of the peripheral nervous system. It causes varying levels of nerve damage, frequently temporary as it was for me in the end, but also sometimes permanent. The nerve damage causes paralysis, which begins with and creeps in from your peripheries. Your peripheries are your feet, hands, also face, the outlying parts of the human body. Mine began with the feet, then legs, then my hands, and then my arms, up into my torso, to my lungs. It moves inwards. It was hard to persuade the medics initially, on my first visit to A&E, that I couldn't breathe properly. They didn't believe me and said I should calm down and enjoy Christmas. They said I was a tired mum and I was behaving very anxious and needed to calm down and go home and look after my children because it was Christmas. GBS is a relatively rare illness which may explain why it was missed on my first trip to A&E. I did go home at that point because it was too frightening trying to tell someone I couldn't breathe who didn't believe me. And I did get better from GBS, but it took a while. And my recovery was in two parts. The first part was about coming back to the gym to resurrect a body that I had fully rejected because it had rejected me. It betrayed me. It really didn't work and for a long time I could not accept that it didn't want me. It didn't love me. It didn't even like the idea of me. I've returned to the ha-ha and sit with my back to the building. The cattle are far off but will approach, I hope. I build a plan for when they do. To my left is my hand, to the right my other. My feet are socks filled with rice. They knock heavy on the stones and sometimes swing together. 
swing away. Can you see me from the long window? Hand by hand I lift grass and stones to pour into the ditch. It takes years. Over that time I have lost my children and all the people who were near. Some days I dribble soil, others I push fingers into the wet ground and force earth down to speed it up. I'm desperate. Can you bring the children soon, I think, but no one ever does. Some days I shout for them, I scream and cleave. Why won't someone bring them to me? I make a pile of daisy heads and push them in one day. A small stone follows them down. What's your plan? I ask it. Leaves blow and those I clasp I crush with flat hands and cobbled rice. I have lost the knowledge for standing because I forgot to try. My legs look up at me, so sad. How true is that, they say. I'm throwing grass today for pity's sake, I say right back. Eventually the cows approach. At last, I think. But I'm not ready and puff up air to make a hasty cloud they'll walk on. In dizziness and clumsy, I roll down and form the bridge I sought to build. The cows cross and ratio the landscape. You are all angry. I have spoiled the view. End of Act One. Me, I, on the problem, it's me. On the problem, it's me. Act 2. You could have a great body if you worked at it. Tell me, baby, what we gonna do? I'll make it easy, got a lot to lose. Watch the sun and light coming through. Open the window, let it shine on you. Cause I've been sick and working all weekend. The psychiatrist says I am Lego. Tiny bricks that fit together. Dots that sit on each other. Sadness clicks. Go on. Assemble me. This makes sense. I like sitting on things. Chairs. Metaphor. We talk about the past as if it's a wall I can't scramble. Blocks assembled. He offers resources to help. Courage. Self-love. Characters from books. I like him. This makes sense. We sit in a room facing each other. Chairs. Stackable. <laughs> I said my recovery was in two parts. It had to be physical inevitably, that was the obvious part. There was an emotional recovery too. In hospital I'd been reassured that there would be no emotional fallout, no trauma from the illness, but I knew this wasn't true. To be without my children was horrific without even getting near the terror I felt as my body fell into a deep paralysis, all the while my brain fully aware of what was happening, neurologically unaffected. My emotional recovery, being less recognised or visible, took longer to address and get help with than my physical recovery. But I did get help with it, seven years after the illness, from the liaison psychiatry team at Leeds General Infirmary. Liaison psychiatry supports people whose physical health problems have led them to experience emotional difficulties. 
My physical recovery was two years, really, from coming out of hospital where I'd been eight weeks, including a stint at a neuro rehab ward in another hospital, to training my body through a small amount of NHS physio, then private physio and Pilates, lots of Pilates, first one-to-one, then in small groups, then bigger groups, and a lot of time in the gym sat on a gym ball doing the tiniest of exercises to try and get my brain to connect to my feet. I was grateful to access the help I did. I knew not everyone would be able to. We put all our grocery shopping on a credit card for a year to liberate money for my rehabilitation. The debt was huge, but we believed we would be able to repay it because I was slowly getting better. Nerves are amazing. They're also terrible when they don't work. I ended up with more flexible feet than before the illness. I spent days and weeks staring at them, urging them to move, which is pretty terrifying. But then when they do, tiny movements over time, it gives joy like nothing I've experienced before and sort of don't want to ever experience again. It gives hope, and hope generates effort, and effort generates more hope, and it goes on, and you start to believe. Every now and then, and when I said I love gyms, I don't love everything about gyms. I don't love the sexism and inequality in them. Every now and then, a PT, a personal trainer, would approach me looking for business under the guise of chatty, flirty, friendly, mum's a bit fat, chatter up. They'd creep up from behind and goose me, put a hand on my waist so that I shot off the gym ball with the force of being born or leaving an aircraft in a hurry, out of my skin, out of my heart, into the sky, with the unexpectedness and, frankly, sheer front of it. The conversation always went something like this. PT. Hi. Me. Hi. Me jumps out of myself, tries to pull headphones out of ears in strangled confusion, gives up on that. Tries to pull headphones out of phone instead. Gives up on that. Tries to stop song on phone by hitting play button repeatedly. Gives up on that. Tries to turn music down on phone. Manages that, but feels annoyed not going to be able to hear the end of Titanium. Manages to get further tangled. Looks confused. Blushes. Looks angry. Looks shocked. Looks angry and confused again. Looks sorry. All this takes about 30 seconds, which is too long, but yet it feels like three minutes, by which point they are really regretting coming over. Fuck. PT. Sorry. Ha <laughs> I just wanted to say hi. Me. Hi. PT. How are you? Didn't mean to scare you. Me. Ha. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm okay. Thank you. PT. So yeah, notice you sat on the gym ball. I do a lot of work with clients your age and I think you could have a great body if you worked at it and I could really help you. Me. Thinks. Fuck you. I'm emaciated from months unable to eat or move and a life-threatening, debilitating, paralysing illness. Fuck you. My body looks fucking amazing. I'm 35 and 8 stone and I look amazing, so fuck you. What I actually say, ah, yeah, thanks, I'm okay, just doing physio, trying to get my feet wiggling. I got ill, but I'm getting there. PT, yeah, no worries. You could have a great body, though, if you worked at it. I could really help you, so just let me know. You know where I am. Me. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> right now it's about small movements, really. I was paralysed and I'm not long out of hospital and I'm trying to build back up again. PT, well, I can definitely help you. We need to get you moving, get you doing some weights, build up those muscles. You could have a great body if you did some weights. Me, I can't do that right now. I was paralysed with a neurological illness. I'm working with physios to build up strength and make some nerve connections. That's why I sit here trying to move my feet and my toes. PT, great, I've got a degree in sports science so I know how we can get you up and moving. Just give me a shout, yeah, and we can get you looking good. All right, you take care, take care, yeah? Me, bye, bye, in my head. Fuck you. What I didn't like was never being asked. I get it, why would they? What happened to me was weird and they wanted to sell something, that's all. 
But what did they think I was doing, sat on a gym ball, trying to move my toes, trying to lift my leg half an inch off the floor? I don't understand. And this is where the anger comes in. Why it didn't spark an interest? Why wasn't it interesting? Why not ask? Why weren't they curious? I would have been curious. I would have been. When finally I stood up, after years of falling over, I realised it was from not seeing you, the ability to stand. But standing had its pitfalls. First solitude, later glass underfoot, and my feet had a habit of wandering anywhere without shoes. I was glad of the air that standing brought and boring days endlessly plain. But where some have nothing to talk about, I had nothing to write about. And standing became missing, became waiting to explain. So after having my babies, I ran. I learned to run. I loved running. And then after the GBS, I really ran. Running after the GBS was an act of deep love and faith in a body that had thought it was calling the shots. Running after the paralysis was to be back in control and grateful. Gratitude and relief are like power-up stripes on the floor of Diddy Kong Racing. They propel you. I knew that my recovery from GBS was good, that I had crawled out of a moderate, not severe case. I had escaped ventilation and ICU. I had plateaued. That means the paralysis, the descent into paralysis, had stopped getting worse just in time, so that my recovery chances to full mobility were good. I was told my relative youth at 35 and being female meant I was more likely statistically to recover. Yet in the full grip of the paralysis, unable to move, unable to eat independently, shower, wash, wee, hold my children, move my face, in deep, deep, chaos-making, universe-breaking pain every day, with no promise of ever gaining use of my face or legs again, only a statistic, I was heartbroken, ready to descend further, ready to be taken. I had no reason to believe I would walk or smile again. And I mean smile as in, you know, be able to move my face, not from joy, just be able to make it move. The pain experienced with GBS was acute. Despite not being able to move, the body yet can produce the most unbearable pain and nausea. It was one of the top sick jokes of the illness, extreme pain from a body that yet had no sensation or function. That seemed so fucked up to me. I'd been given five days of immunoglobulin therapy via a drip to help try and halt the paralysis. Immunoglobulin is part of the blood's plasma and the donated immunoglobulin was given to help strengthen my immune system to counteract the damage my own immune system was doing by attacking my nerves and causing the paralysis. With GBS, there's very little they can do to stop the illness. They sort of watch you while you have it, keep you alive till the illness turns away. The immunoglobulin therapy was the major intervention they had up their sleeves. It was about to kick in and start working for me, but I didn't know it yet. The night my lungs and body were descending into paralysis further, before the plateau hit, they took hourly readings of my lung capacity and warned me ICU and ventilation looked imminent. I know people talk about facing death or seeing it come for them, but that night I did neither. I just sat before it in pure terror. To know that your body can no longer sustain you to live is an emotion beyond all emotions. It's an emotion you can produce when you have already left and hope has no resources. It's an emotion that is a wilderness with one absolute present, that of knowing you are nothing, about to fall back into the earth to nothing. It is truly the greatest abandonment and there is nothing loving about it. I grieved for my children, for the loss of my role as their mother and for what was coming, what we had never prepared for. I grieved as a parent, 
and for the loss of myself. I grieved for the lack of choice I had. Why did the universe not know how much I loved being a mum? Did no one know how much I wanted to live? Did no one know how urgently I needed to breathe and walk? Where were the people acknowledging how the world would end if I wasn't in it? Didn't they know the world was about to end? I remember those times it happened. There were four. That dark, groundless space of giving birth, when I stepped off earth into shapelessness, became impossible, then returned. And the last of losing you. In my recovery from GBS, running gave me a sense of power and force that I had not previously experienced, and for this to follow the greatest loss of it was profound. To this day, when I exercise, when I move, I feel power and I feel force. I feel like crying. Running gave me focus on my body. It gave me sexual confidence and lust for air and sweat and skin. Running gave me desire for lungs charging and legs burning and everything wild. I poured bottles of water over myself, built up strength, sobbed uncontrollably as I ran and screamed music into my ears. Running, the flaws of my face fell away. Running, the opinion of others fell away. Running, the trauma of remembering that night in hospital when my breathing was failing and the world was ending, moved further away. I discovered too the connection between running and motion, which sounds so obvious, but I started to understand that dance and running gave me similar feelings and that it was the sense of being in motion that they shared. Not just moving. I don't mean just moving. I mean the continuum of moving and the rhythm of it, the ability to sustain it. Whatever I was doing, wherever I was doing it, it was being in motion that I loved. Running had a rhythm that was entirely about motion, the pace and the synthesis of lungs and heart working so beautifully, so harmoniously together, like absolute allies. My body was being told to get on, and it did. All of it. I learnt the difference between motor function and sensory function, how I could run, even if I couldn't quite feel the soles of my feet. I learned to trust that my muscles could compensate body-wide for the lack of feeling I had in certain parts. I learnt about how to balance again, and about proprioception, the sense that lets us perceive the location, movement and action of parts of our body in relation to the world around it. I learned to admire my body and understand its ability to heal and to work really hard and to repair. I learned about repairing. Repairing is one of my favourite things that humans do. I also learned that writing is motion too. Writing is pace and speed and often, even now, years after the illness, when I'm on the bike exercising, the writing is kicking in and I get off the bike to write, then get back on the bike to cycle and so on and so on. Culturally, I think we have a limited idea about what relaxation is. We have this idea that relaxing means sitting in a hot bath with incense or candles, turning a shade of red, but this is not relaxing to me. Of course, it's good to slow down, to do nothing, to relax. I get peace from stillness. I do like stillness. But I have to tell you, Motion generates harmony in me, and I experience that as peace. And running and cycling generate physical pleasures in me only comparable to sex. Not the same as sex, but as important as sex. Sex is motion too. I loved running so much. Running was a conceptual fucking. That's what running was to me. Only one day, of course. Again, I had to stop running. We need Sir Anne Jones played on a loop, 
streamed into waiting rooms, residential homes, maternity wards, schools, gyms and dance studios to show us how to walk, as if we're negotiating land, about to drop a shaft, declare love, vault styles, summon physicians and ride. You can pump loud music over the top, deliver other messages, beta blockers, babies, legs, bums and tums classes. All the while, we'll learn how to walk again, fling open doors, start and end conversations, carry our chin half an inch higher than the rest. A city, no, an atlas of Anne's, urgent like giants, hammers swinging from the sky, ready to walk into rooms and mine them. End of Act Two. Sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby And I'm a monster on the hill Too big to hang out, slowly lurching toward your favourite city Pierced through the heart but never killed Did you hear my covert narcissism? Like disguises altruism Like some kind of Act 3. Defecating Proctogram. Hey, I heard you were a wild one. Ooh, if I took you home and be a woman, show me how you do. I want to shut down in the club with you. So, okay, so, here we go. I have a scar on my back for a few weeks from the floor in you. I remember that. So, there we go. Later, I'm myself again. This amuses me, but you stare confused. Where was I then? Back then. I reveal inadequacy with intimacy. But I do like floors and mirrors. Hey, I heard you were a wild one. Ooh, if I took you home and be a woman, show me how you do. Not running happened towards the end of my third pregnancy, somewhere along in 2012. My third pregnancy was my deliberate, masterful way of saying fuck you to my stupid body and yes to my great body. Very late in the pregnancy, I was sat in a hotel bath, relaxing, when I reached to remove the flannel I was sitting on. When I grabbed around in the water, I couldn't find anything and I realised the lump I was sat on was me. I spent the next hour googling prolapse and surgery and quickly arrived at the opinion that I would calm the fuck down, have the baby and hope for the best and maybe heal, somehow heal. My body, I figured, had a history of healing. The conversation with myself went something like this. Me one. You have a bulge, you stupid fuck. You have a bulge. Why do you have a bulge? What the fuck is this? The bulge is your fault. Another fail. Here we go. Me too. It's unfortunate you have a bulge. Perhaps the bulge is in your head. Is there definitely a bulge? If there is a bulge, then there's nothing you can do about the bulge. Bulge or no bulge, the world continues to turn and you are on it. And no one cares whether you have a bulge, so fuck it. Me one. Well, everything is over now, isn't it? Here we go again. Fail again. Your stupid body. No one has more of a stupid failing body than you. Your bulge is like your face. Your face is a bulge. Your bulge is a bulge. Flawed. You are so flawed. Me too. 
Other people must have experienced this. Let's get this in perspective by Googling it. Go and Google it. Google about it now. Read what other people say. Find out about the surgery they probably have or whatever it is they do with these bulges. Me one. What the fuck? Mesh? What the fuck is mesh? By this point, me one and me two have merged into one giant swirling me with bulge. Mesh. Mesh. A mesh? The mesh sounds not good. Oh God, yes, people are having issues with the mesh. I will not have mesh. Definitely not having mesh. Phew, I have escaped mesh with good pre-mesh knowledge. Good for me. Well done. Clever me. (sighs) Have the baby, Emma. Just have the baby. So I went back home and saw my midwife and then saw an obstetrician and they said, have the baby, wait. And I did. And well, here I am. And largely, I'm fine. And most days I'm unaware of it. But the prolapse did mean I stopped running. I remember talking to a physio about it and she said she had clients who loved running so much they ran despite their prolapse. And she also knew women who completely stopped, like me. Those that continued did so because they couldn't bear losing running, that it defined them too much. I do love running and I miss it, but I've come to accept that I can't. Prolapse is when something has been displaced from its intended position. My bowel had shifted and was pushing into my vaginal wall. That's it. It's called a rectocele. Some days I'm aware of it not feeling right. Other days, most days, I'm okay. It seems to go up and down. I don't know what, but something. Maybe the bowel, maybe my pelvic floor, maybe my awareness of it. Who knows? All I know is I waited, and I still wait, and it's been years now. And I live with it. And no surgery yet, and maybe I will eventually. But right now, I live with it. I prefer to live with it. I've got used to living with things, to accepting that parts of my body don't work and it's not going to kill me. This is different from the body dysmorphic disorder where my face represents a problematic, unchangeable thing. BDD represents the opposite of acceptance. But neck down, I'm sort of loving my body, even the bits that are a bit damaged. To help my pelvic floor, for which I must tell you, I have had excellent feedback from urogynecologists, and I quote, you're not at all bad down there. And, considering you've had three kids, you're actually very strong down there. And, your pelvic floor is strong. (laughs) That's me. That's the feedback on me. Although one physio did once say, I mean, don't get me wrong, you're not 18 down there. Yes, thank you. I ended that conversation fast. But, as I was saying, to help my pelvic floor, I was given biofeedback at the urogynecology outpatient clinic. This was great. They give you weekly internal examinations which involve someone's hand up you while they get you to cough and relax and tilt your arse and relax and all of that. They also gave me computer games to play. To play the computer games, I had a probe inserted and that was connected to a device and then that was connected to a monitor and I lay on a hospital bed squeezing my pelvic floor. The squeezing starting with my vagina and then clenching round to my anus. And the effect of this is that I move a flying bee up and down on the computer screen in a game. The goal of the game is to hit as many flowers as possible with the bee, by moving the bee. The game had the complexity of something on the CBeebies website, where you basically slam the spacebar to move upwards, otherwise you float down, in order to hit a flower. I was very accurate at being a bee with my pelvic floor. I am an excellent vaginal bee. Me, vagina, bee, pollinate, pollinate. I think my vagina was basically collecting pollen, I think that was the point of the game. I was fertilising the planet with my twat, which sort of makes sense. And the thing is, with all that clenching, you're not supposed to look like you're doing it. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. 
They tell you, you can be silently doing your pelvic floor squeezes in the office, in meetings, at the bus stop, because no one will be able to tell you're doing them. This isn't true. Not for me, anyway. I could never hide it. I really had to concentrate to squeeze, and my face always said, I'm squeezing my pelvic floor and anus, every time I did. I also got given a probe and a little device to take home and they programmed it for me and the idea was to insert it every night or maybe even twice a day and it would help strengthen my pelvic floor by mimicking the squeezes or clenches you would do manually. But it's hard with three kids to find time to sit on your bed for 30 minutes and clench. After a while I had to return the on-loan device from the hospital which by the way was handheld and didn't come with a monitor or B role play so I bought my own device which I later learned was very overpriced. They're selling you hope really. And you can get a much cheaper version, which does just as well, and was the same model the hospitals use. Anyway, unhappy with my expensive, newly owned machine, or rather, unhappy with the probe that came with it, I rang their helpline. The conversation went something like this. Company. Hello. Me. Hello, I have your machine and I'm having trouble with the probe that came with it, and I'm wondering if I can use my old probe that came with the machine the hospital gave me. Company. You should be able to use the probe that we supplied with it, Did you get the gold probe with the machine? Me. Yes, it's gold. It's very gold. And I can't feel it, so it doesn't work, and the other one does. Company. The gold probe is our super deluxe probe and the one intended with your machine, so we do advise you continue to use it. Me. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it's just that I can't feel it, but I can feel the other one, so maybe the other one just fits me better. Company. We don't advise you to use a non-compatible probe. We advise customers to use our deluxe gold probe, which is compatible with your machine. (laughs) Okay, thank you, I see. It's not compatible with me, though. I decide to move the conversation in a new direction. I have another question. Do I need a rectal probe? Company. What for? Me. For my rectoseal. We don't recommend rectal probes for your condition. Me. Oh, okay. So... What are the rectal probes for? Wouldn't a rectal probe help my rectoseal? Company. No, they're not designed for that. Me. What are rectal probes designed for then? For customers with other conditions. Me. Rectal conditions, not rectoseals. Company. Yes. Me. So is a rectoseal not a rectal prolapse? Company. No, it's not. Me. Ah, okay. I didn't realise that. (laughs) I thought I had a rectal prolapse. (laughs) So do I not have a rectal prolapse then? Company. We can't comment on customers' individual situations, but I can advise you that with a rectoseal, we recommend a vaginal probe. Me. Oh, okay, thank you. Who uses a rectal probe then? Company. Well, other customers. For a rectoseal, we recommend the deluxe vaginal gold probe, which is designed to support rectoseals and other pelvic floor prolapses. Me. Okay, okay. So I don't need a rectal probe as well as a vaginal probe. Company. No, you do not need a rectal probe. Me. Okay. I don't understand what the rectal probe is for then, but never mind. I respect your position. I respect your knowledge and rectal information. And I did actually order a rectal probe from another company because I thought I did need one in a panic, but then they incorrectly sent a bulk supply of XXL incontinence pads instead. So I never got the rectal probe company. Okay. Me. So that was weird. They're sort of um, big paper pants with pads in, you know, integrated. They gave me a refund for the pants because I don't need incontinence pads. And I tried to send them back, but they didn't want them back. So that's where I'm at. 
I have the pants. I don't need the pants. I don't have the rectal probe, but I don't need the rectal probe, do I? Back to square one with no rectal probe, which is fine. And I've got your shiny gold probe and I've got the silver probe, which is great. So I use that company. We strongly recommend you use our own gold deluxe probe. All our probes have a three month life after which we recommend you replace it because it will stop working. Me. Oh, OK. Like iPhones with the updates. They're just programmed to stop working. <laughs> company no no we just strongly recommend you replace them for maximum benefit if you sign up to our probe subscription service a brand new deluxe gold probe will be posted out to you every three months would you like to sign up today me no thank you but thank you for your help and knowledge take care eventually i gave up on using any kind of probe or squeezing machine i'm not sure it helps i think it can help and probably does help many women but i'm not sure it helps me on one of my downturns, one of my periods of worsening, in the height of my bee action, and being such a great, accurate, busy bee, I feel something give way internally mid-spree. Later, I can't get a tampon in. This corrects itself after a few months, but not before I've struggled to walk for a few weeks with severe pain in my lower back. Sometimes, ten years on, even at night now, I'm woken by severe coccyx pain or pain in the rectum. I had a colonoscopy to investigate this, and it was clear, thank goodness but I did go overboard on the gas and air and had to rest up afterwards to get my heart rate normal before I could leave the hospital. They gave me lots of bourbons and custard creams to help, which is sort of the modern-day equivalent of being revived with smelling salts. And following the colonoscopy, around the same time, I had the joy of a defecating proctogram. A defecating proctogram is a medical procedure. It shows how your rectum functions during the emptying of your bowels, it involves examination of the lower bowel and rectum using x-rays, where you drink diluted barium and are then x-rayed as you sit on a portable toilet behind a curtain and poo it out into a bucket, with an audience. It's really fantastic. They ask you to push out the paste, a white poo, into a bucket, and they can see it happening and they x-ray it, and it tells them useful things. They're very kind and they reassure you and hope you won't feel embarrassed. It's pretty weird, though. My rectus ill was confirmed, but I'd lived with it for six years by then and felt quite calm about the whole thing. It wasn't particularly bad and I'd learned to trust my body's ability to heal. How it's never stopped changing. How amazing it is. I have learned to live with my body in flux. One tampon left, a super, and the last strong coffee in the house. I worry when I place the problematic hygiene product on the bath edge, cliff top, chalky, above the precipice below, which is my bathroom floor, in fact, with coffee cup, a brown low pool, sat ready for the flea trapeze to drop. As if propelled by fear, mine, its, the product rolled to death, an abject luge from the life it sees ahead and doesn't want, inserted, dark, soon spent and flushed, yes, flushed, while I, aghast, see both the coffee and the product rendered nothing in one foul, twin, foil, bitch. I cannot be alert or bloodless now. What day is this? The tampon in the bin, I stuff my pants with paper and blind hope, gaze down at the coffee, think, is it safe? Dave told me about this once, the three times rule when things go wrong. Chant, it doesn't matter, 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 even if it does. I drink. And back to the gym. Well, eventually I gave up on that too, but not before I'd found a second-hand static bike to train on, and it now sits in the corner of my bedroom. Yes, covered in clothes, but I lift them off every day, sometimes twice a day, to train. And though I miss running, I sort of run on the bike some days, moving my arms in sync with my legs, so I find a way to have the level of motion I want. 
and I open the wardrobe door and I can see myself in the mirror as I train. And because I'm in motion, I don't mind my face so much. And while I cycle, I listen to music and I write, take breaks to make notes, then jump back on to cycle. I feel peaceful and I feel grateful. I feel at rest. Some mornings I stand in the mirror before I get dressed and I stare at myself naked. I stand with both feet on the ground and look blankly ahead, balanced, propriocepting the world, figuring my place in it and in my own body. Some days I think, oh, please lose some weight. And so I try, I do try to. Other days I think, we're fine, you're good. I try to be kind to what I see. I try to appreciate her. I try to look at her as she deserves to be looked at, as a complete person, a whole body, with every aspect of it, including my face, a loved and vital part. I try to look longer than I want to. And to help, I recall the times before when I stood like this. Those moments pre-Corsica, pre-Ajaccio, pre-that bikini, and after that bikini, when I do see and love myself. I remember them. At 19, when I cut off my hair. At 21, briefly. At 29. And now. I've cut off my hair, wear trousers for men, stalk the room like a wolf near a rival's den. So thin, I don't need a bra. My tits cannibalistic. The barber wouldn't cut it, so I found a girl who could. The boys at the flat don't like it, say they prefer it long. Sure, I bet you would. It's 20 years before my father dies and I've already overtaken him. I circle the room while people take what they won't offer me. Small towns of bottled water sprawl conurbations across the floor. Triples run in threes. The room shrinks. That boy I didn't want but who thinks he disappointed me looks so gauche with his girlfriend from home. Someone who lectures me sits on the floor. Later he'll go home with a girl. Boundaries aren't something they've figured yet. I walk past people but don't stop to talk. They've got the door. I owe them for my entrance. My body is the best it's ever been. Did I tell you I cut off my hair? I stood in the mirror before we left. My body is breathtaking, completely awake. They can't see me. The boys can't see me. I'm wearing their clothes. My body is the best it's ever been. End of Act 3 Thank you for listening. With love always, the triple fool. Rectal Prolapse is written and performed by Pamela Crow. The role of the colorectal surgeon is performed by Jason Evans. I wake up screaming from dreaming One day I'll watch as you're leaving Cause you got tired of my scheming
Hi, Peter. Yeah, rectal prolapse. So, um, well, I always called it that in my head. And then I started to talk about it at home uh, with my family. I have three kids uh, about uh, this piece of work I was writing, which was really in my head, this kind of celebration of language and the body. And as with all my work, with a great deal of kind of honesty and direct talking about what's really going on. So um, I, uh, my kids are used to me talking like this and they, they do too. And so um, rectal prolapse is a, a kind of um, 45 minute uh, comedy monologue. Um, the main character is called Emma Thompson and without a P because I adore the one with a P. And it's about women's bodies. It's about uh, the character's body as she moves through in and out of this um, uh, period of her life, uh, having children, uh, experiencing uh, neurological paralysis, and uh, and then all the things that kind of come with, with after childbirth, with and after childbirth, but also for women who don't have kids, to do with gynecological issues and prolapse. So... Um, it's trying to be very open and honest about, um, I guess, one woman's relationship changing over time to her body. It's a love story of the woman's love for her own body as her home. So, Pamela, yeah, that sounds fascinating. And, um, yeah, you've just mentioned, <laughs> we came off air for a minute, and you sort of talked about John Donne. What has John Donne got to do with the rectal prolapse? Um, so, I, so, John Donne is... Um, John Donne is my like inspiration and my biggest poetic crush because that this is a guy who um and if anyone doesn't know he's you know classed as one of the metaphysical poets so he's writing a good few hundred years ago but his poetry is so direct and sexy and kind of honest and physical and beautiful as well um he's writing about desire and love and bodies with with humor and with beautiful language, um, and I just absolutely adore his work. So he's the inspiration for it, but also I read once um, uh, an academic text about John Donne's work, and the guy writing about him said, when you read John Donne's poetry, you, you're almost moving through the city of London and you're getting the sights and the smells, and this, the three words he used were tactile optic shock of the city, and I loved that. And so that's why the title, Rectal Prolapse, is uh, trying to kind of achieve that kind of tactile optic shock and, and the piece of work itself that I've written is trying to do that. And and the link to John Donne is that um, I explore kind of, uh, I guess, poetic writing for stage in the work. Um, so it's also really um, influenced by Shakespeare. And for me, this absolute love of stage and theatre and, and a, a journey for me, really, of moving my writing um, from poetry into play and performance. I wake up screaming from dreaming One day I'll watch as you leaving And life will lose all its meaning She thinks I left the-
Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. I'm the early, the boy, yeah.